Okay, just make sure. All right. <clears throat> Welcome to another episode of Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Kirsten Holder, and today I am joined by two members of Sunbeam Family Services, Nicole Kanalakis and Amy Clover. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome, Nicole and Amy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Thanks so for having us. Of course, of course. So let's start with some introductions. First of all, Nicole is the Center of Excellence Director for Education Services at, at Sunbeam Family Services. She is a nationally certified school psychologist, receiving her bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in business administration from Texas A&M. She also obtained a specialist level master's degree in school psychology from UCO here in Oklahoma. Nicole has previously worked with several Title I elementary schools in the Oklahoma public school system and originally joined Sunbeam in 2015 as the Disabilities Coordinator for the Childhood Education Services Division. She has made a huge difference to so many kids during her time in that position and eventually moved on to the position she currently holds in education services. Um, Nicole often says that her driving goal is to help every child have the opportunity to learn and succeed in life, which I just love that. Um, Amy Clover is the Center of Excellence Director for Mental Health Services at Sunbeam, where she oversees service delivery and systems integration to support quality early childhood services. She is a licensed clinician and endorsed as an infant mental health mentor through the Oklahoma Association for Infant Mental Health. Amy has worked in the mental health field for 25 plus years, specializing in infant and early childhood mental health in public, private, and nonprofit uh, organizations. Additionally, Amy has worked for nearly seven years at the state level, providing leadership and oversight for the Oklahoma Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health Strategic Plan and Framework for Change. We could go on and on about the involvement Amy has had throughout our community, but I just want to dive in. I'm like so excited to talk about play today. So let's start with a personal note, if that's okay. I'd love to hear your earliest memory of play and how it made you feel. Nicole, let's start with you. Okay, so I have a lot of great memories um, of my childhood, but probably one of the earliest was playing in my sandbox outside. Um, and my parents had a family friend who was a farmer and they were able to get what I call a retired tractor tire. And my mom whitewashed it and um, put some, some blocks underneath it and made it into a sandbox for me and then eventually my younger brother. And I just remember having a whole bunch of different just household items to use as scoops and cups and um, to move the sand around and stack it up. And sometimes my mom would bring out a pitcher of water for me or bring the hose over. And so I get to make the different textures and, you know, just mud patties basically. But um, I, you know, just had a great time sitting in that sandbox playing outside and running around getting water and trucks and different things to put in it. And, it felt really carefree. And um, looking back now, I know I was learning a, a lot of different skills during that play um, and really had a sense of wonder. So it's a great memory. I love that. Yes, some of my earliest memories are outside as well. There's just something about being in the sunshine, not having to worry about getting dirty, like you said. <laughs> Amy, how about you? So I love this question because um, it really makes, made me reflect on um, childhood. Um, I think one of my earliest memories is having been in a preschool type setting um, and um, we had opportunities to kind of do lots of different things. And so one of my favorite things was our, the teacher at the time had a box of musical instruments. Um, and so my friends and I would go and pick an instrument and we kind of put our own little band together as, as early childhood kiddos. Uh, my favorite was the triangle. Like if somebody else grabbed the triangle, I was pretty disappointed. Um, but I, I remember feeling just joy and even reflecting on it now and talking about it, joyful and carefree and just fun, 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 fun. I love that. And we all need more cowbell or triangle in your case. <laughs> 
myself. <laughs> yes, music, play outside. Thank you so much for sharing. Thinking back on some of my favorite memories, they were all centered around playtime um, growing up. So I'd love to know more from the both of you. What should play look like at an early age? We've talked about some examples of what you two loved most about early play, um, but let's start with the earliest years, like that zero to two-year-old time frame. Should we do structured or unstructured play? We all know with little babies, it can kind of go any way that isn't planned or any way that is. We're just not sure. Um, can you explain the pros and cons of both structured and unstructured play? And Amy, I'd love to start with you this time. Sure. Um, so like you said, Kirsten, with our infants and toddlers, um, it can go lots of different ways. And so one of the most important things about that is in those earliest years is the connection with the adults. Um, and really unstructured is probably more of what they're doing because they're learning about themselves and the world around them. Mm -hmm. And they do that through their interactions and experiences. Um, so I would say probably in those earliest years, unstructured play is more of the norm. We can introduce some structure as they begin to move into toddlerhood and things like that. But we, I think ultimately we want to try to find the balance between the two. Absolutely. Nicole, what about you? Yes, so um, in our field, we like to say that play is the work of childhood, and um, it's really the key to overall healthy development for our kiddos as they are exploring and growing and learning. Um, and it, it play actually, in, in brain development terms, it's really shaping the structural design of our children's brains early on. So like Amy said, um, the unstructured play is probably the most common and beneficial very early on for our kiddos. They're just exploring themselves and their, their people around them, you know, their trusted adults around them and their own bodies and that sort of thing. Um, and it's good if parents can take part in in that with them so that they're having and building those relationships. And really it's a balance between a structured and unstructured as kids grow and learn, so. Hearing that from two experts kind of takes the pressure off. If you have babies in the household, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but unstructured and just kind of freedom um, that really helps to know that that's the best way to go because a lot of times we don't have control over that anyway. So we're, that might be what we're doing anyway, uh, just as patterns um, are in the earliest stages. So I'd love to hear also what kind of practice skills and mastery skills should we be looking for um, coming out of play? I'm talking about, um, are there cognitive skills, physical abilities, um, vocabulary as kids are getting older? Um, you mentioned social skills with the trusted adults around them, but what are some of the earliest age skills and mastery that we should be looking for? Um, Nicole, let's start with you. And um, so kiddos move through various stages of play from the earliest stages. They're pretty unoccupied and just learning about um, their own bodies and things like that. And then work up more towards, um, you know, in toddlerhood, parallel play alongside other kiddos, but not as much direct interaction yet through play. Um, but they are learning not only body awareness, but their basic gross motor skills. So the cause and effect of when I do this, this happens. This is uh, the muscles I use to stand up and that sort of thing. They're also working on very early communication skills, even before they can actually verbally understandably talk with us. Um, and in that there's the reciprocal social interactions, like we'd like to call it serve and return. So the interactions with the adults around them, um, just cueing off of their visuals and watching the models that are happening. And even before they can say words, um, they're interacting with their adults. And if you're noticing those sorts of things, you're interacting with them based off of interest as well. And two, you're, you're exposing the child to lots of sounds and vocabulary as you're talking to them. So they're developing that baseline foundation and then self-regulation through co-regulation with adults as well. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, sometimes when you have a little baby, you don't think eye contact matters that much. But as you're talking about these cause and effects and, and reactions that I can definitely see how that plays a plays a part. Amy, I'd love to hear from you on the same question. 
Sure, um, I echo what Nicole says for sure. Um, and the adult interactions with our littles, you know, definitely promoting social emotional development specifically. Um, our littles are learning about themselves and the world around them and how to be in the world. Um, and so that's an important piece of things that, you know, that are setting the stage for later on in life, even into adulthood. Mm -hmm. I love that. So as kids get older, as we move into toddlerhood and beyond, um, how should their play start to change and evolve? Some of these earliest interactions really have to do with becoming just a more independent person, you know, standing up to walk, as Nicole mentioned, what muscles do I use? Or if I smile at someone, what happens next? Um, but as they, as they grow up and they kind of learn all those skills, how should that play look different? And kind of the same question, should we continue that unstructured play um, or what does structured play look like as we introduce it at those ages? And then the pros and cons of both here too. Um, Amy, let's start with you. Sure, well, as children move through the developmental process and which is very individualized for sure, um, you know, we start to see that they move from more um, independent type play into parallel play, and then they begin to interact in those preschool years with their peers more. And then moving into elementary school, more you know, continued interactions and cooperative play and problem solving and things like that. Um, and, and that continues with them into their school years and beyond. Um, and so we really want to pay attention to what their interests are and what's happening around them. Where do they gravitate toward? Um, for sure, I think I would emphasize again a balance between structured and unstructured play, but we probably start to see more structured kinds of things as they move into elementary school and beyond. Um, but the ground has been laid, the groundwork has been laid for them in those earliest years to really begin to be the social beings that they are. Sure, yes. Would you break down um, parallel play um, and what that looks like? Sure. So, so we see that in beginning to develop um, in toddlerhood. And, you know, you may have a couple of children together or a group of children, say, in a classroom, um, and they're playing in the same space. Um, they may or may not be playing with the same kinds of toys, but they're not really interacting a whole lot. Um, they're playing kind of beside each other more than interacting. They may be looking over at their peer to kind of see what they're doing with the toy that they have, but they're really not doing that cooperative thing, that back and forth with their peers just yet. Right, right. It's more of a you're here in the room, not come play with me quite yet. Understood, yes. Nicole, I'd love to hear from you on the same question. Sure, yes, so much like Amy was talking about, as they get older and closer towards kindergarten age, you know, four and five, that's when we're really seeing them more in that co cooperative play phase. So where they're starting to interact with others more and they're starting to find more mutual interests, they're interested in toys or like the, um, the home station, right? And they're starting to act out things with pretend play and that sort of thing. And so as they get a little bit older, um, they're, they're beginning to embark on more complex interactions and communication. They've got more vocabulary now. Um, and so they're starting to work out um, some of the more complex things that we'll see later down the line when they're in school and doing group projects, say, and, and that sort of thing, so. Sure. Um, speaking of cooperative play, I just love to ask, you know, I'm sure this is where kind of personalities start to come out. I mean, they've been coming out this whole time, <laughs> but, you know, you really start to see um, kids that are more outgoing or kids that are more reserved. Um, can you talk about how that might play into cooperative play and how we as parents can foster or encourage cooperative play? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, yes, you're correct. I mean, every child is going to have their own personality. And while we do want to encourage interaction, I think it's really important to be noticing um, and knowing your child's personality. So we want to scaffold them learning how to do more things and interact, but we don't want to push them to the point where they're very, very uncomfortable. Um, some kiddos are just naturally more extroverted and want to play more with children. Um, and some 
some kiddos are going to be a little bit more introverted and not want to play maybe with as many children. So they might just have a select few that they're more comfortable playing with. So giving them those opportunities and experiences, but not pushing too much for them, I think is what's most important there. Yes, and they're still learning and it's so hard, you know, you can almost see the pressure on their face. I feel like when they're like, well, what, what am I going to be right now? Who am I going to be? And it's those questions we're still trying to figure out as an adult, but these are these are early practice skills that they're learning. So kind of same question we asked earlier uh, out of babyhood, as our kids get early, um, or I'm sorry, as our kids get older into toddlerhood, what are the practice and mastery skills that should come from play? And I'm hearing from you, you know, cooperative play rather than um, parallel play. Are there any other practice or mastery skills that they're learning at this time? Yeah, so um, their expressive communication should really be developing at this point in time and um, they're hearing more words and sounds and they're saying more even if it's not totally clear yet, um, but they are get, gaining that vocabulary and they are also becoming more flexible and adaptable to different situations as they're getting more comfortable with themselves and their personalities, as well as creativity and imagination are really starting to blossom. So you'll see much more of the pretend play and the interactions. Um, they're also more coordinated physically usually by this time. And so they're really refining things like balance um, and physical abilities as well as more fine motor abilities as well. So um, manipulating smaller parts and toys and beating themselves and that sort of thing. Um, and cognitive wise, we're really developing more of um, some ability to plan and sequence things they're doing and following multiple step directions um, and a little bit of initial problem solving at this point as well. Amy, same question for you. Sure. Um, I think from the social emotional perspective, they're really learning how to be in relationships. They're learning more about who they are and who other people are and how to engage. They're learning how to regulate, to do, you know, demonstrate self-regulation. So when there's disappointment and upset, you know, they're learning how to manage those big feelings in that. Um, and they're really learning problem solving skills and being able to use words to express when they are frustrated and upset and things like that. Yes. I, for those of our listeners that listen frequently, you probably know by now I, I have a toddler in the home and the big feelings are very real. <laughs> um, we are going through that teenager phase. And um, what I think is really interesting and just reminded me of what you mentioned, Amy, is he's constantly um, looking at faces. Um, of course, he's most familiar with my face and how I portray emotion on my face, but he'll even say sometimes, why is the dog making that face? Is he happy or mad? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm hearing that from you. That's just, that's a, it's obviously a positive step in kind of that social emotional intelligence and um, kind of picking up on some of those cues. Are there things we should be doing to practice or uh, foster that at home? Well, I think, again, noticing, you know, what, what your child is interested. I mean, that's a great example with your own child, you know, the dog, who would assign feelings to the dog, right? Um, but just noticing and really paying attention and being present in those moments um, and following up with them, not asking a whole bunch of questions, but really being curious with your child about, you know, what is it that he's wondering about, about the dog as he's trying to navigate and figure out and learn how to name feelings for others as well as himself. Yes, yes. And that's so important. Again, these are skills we're still learning as adults. <laughs> Labeling the emotion is something I remind myself of daily, <laughs> not just because I'm talking about my toddler. <laughs> Oh, we talked with Senator Carrie Hicks in October this last year about the importance of staying active and away from screens um, as it relates to diabetes. We were talking about uh, National Diabetes Month in October. But I'd love to hear in the sense of play, why is it an important habit to adopt whether you have health risks in your family like diabetes or not? Um, and Amy, we'll start with you. So we all know that screens are just a part of our society anymore, right? And, and there's good and bad, there's pros and cons with all of that. Um, but we really want, as children are growing and developing, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about already is why this is so important because they're developing the skills necessary for how they're gonna navigate the world into adulthood. 
Um, so too much screen time, um, specifically, you know, we're all probably guilty of getting on your cell phone, you know, grabbing your cell phone to kind of kill some time and that kind of thing. But it really minimizes creativity and opportunities for interaction and verbalizations and things like that that are so important. Um, so being active and moving around and limiting screen time, you know, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics identifies screen time for under two as like, don't do it, right? Um, so again, I think we're talking about balance and really figuring out how to, to do both because screens are just a, and technology are just a part of our world. Um, so we've got to figure out how to assure that our littles and, and our, our kids in general are able to interact with others in the world because they're going to have to do that. They're going to have to develop the skills and the self-regulation to be able to navigate being in the world into adulthood. Uh, that's such a good point too, as a learned skill over time, looking at it that way. And it's, it's so hard to do. I mean, parents of littles, but I'm sure of any age, sometimes it's just easier, but that doesn't mean in the long term that it's better. So trying to find that balance, as you mentioned, is so important. Nicole, I'd love to hear from you at the same question. Absolutely. So like Amy was mentioning, um, little our little guys especially are really learning primarily by exploring their environment and observing what's going on around them. Um, things out in nature, um, the dog, like you were talking about, right, in the home, and you especially as the parent or caregiver of the child. And so they're seeing what we're modeling as well. But um, we know that excessive screen time can really inhibit kiddos developing abilities to observe and notice those sorts of things and um, be able to identify emotions in others as well. And so we wanna, we wanna set that bar early for good long-term development so that they're not developing a, a tunnel vision to just really look at and notice screens as opposed to the people who are right there with them. Um, and another thing in the zero to three age range, especially, this is when language is developing the most rapidly it ever will in the lifetime. And so children learn language best by engaging and interacting with others and adults that are talking to them and playing with them um, just through the everyday things that they're doing. And a lot of studies have shown that children under two um, learn significantly less from videos, even if they're educational videos, than when learning from another person and interacting in person with them. Um, you know, kiddos as young as about six months will look like they're looking at a TV or a screen, but they're really not processing and picking up anything from the screen until significantly after age two. So um, the one caveat I would say to that is I know in our world as we are now, we're much spread out and much more than we have been. And so if there are family members, you know, in a different state that they don't get to see a lot um, and you want to FaceTime with them, um, that is slightly better for them than regular screen time because it's much more interactive. So usually that would mean with a young child, the parent is there on the one end with the child narrating some of what's going on and pointing out things for say the grandparent on the other end who is also interacting with the child. So, um, but you know, screen time during a day instead of that sort of interaction much better to sit down and look at a book with the child or um, play a game or something like that. So they're really having that interaction and seeing your example for them as well. Right. Oh my goodness. That FaceTiming is a good point. I'm glad you brought that up right now. You know, we're coming up on the two year anniversary of the pandemic. It is yes. so crazy to even say that out loud. And so many kids I think have been so much more used to seeing relatives and loved ones through a screen than they ever have yes. in the past. Um, again, using a personal example, my uh, toddler, if I put the phone on speaker, <laughs> he'll say, hey, look at this. And I was, well, they can't see you. They're not on FaceTime. Right. <laughs> it just kind of assumes now if someone's on the phone, they're on FaceTime because they're getting, you know, more and more used to that. So that, sure. that is really good and interesting point. And, and I love your points about interactivity too. Um, there's questions a lot of the times um, during books, especially, but um, I'm sure during TV shows and when they're not able to answer and express and do the cause and effect that we've discussed, um, I can see how that would be not as beneficial. So I appreciate those points. 
I'd love to talk about benefits to indoor and outdoor play. Uh, we're in January. Uh, we are cold, you know, <laughs> we're hoping for a few sunny days, but a lot of times we're inside right now. Um, and of course, itching to get outside. But how can we maximize opportunity for creative play in both spaces? Nicole, let's start with you. Yeah, great point. So, I mean, indoor and outdoor play both have their pros and cons, of course. Um, it's lovely when we can get outdoors to play. Um, just being in nature, pun intended, right, by its very nature, um, is going to reduce some screen time playing outdoors. It's going to foster a lot more creativity and pretend play and imagination, um, but they're also going to be more physical, right? And so, Sometimes the weather, as you're saying, is not always great for being outside, um, or it might not be the safest place to play outside. And so that's not to say that indoor play can't be a positive thing too. Really the emphasis there would be still limiting screen time and having more time to interact where you're doing thinking activities um, and you're having a conversation games or building things. Um, you know, we, we, we don't get as mo much motor movement inside, especially as adults as we do when we're kids. Um, but if they can still have a, a place to do some of those motor movements, that is okay. But it's interesting because now um, we spend so much less time outdoors than we used to as a society as a whole. And um, there's actually something called nature deficit disorder um, where kiddos are not getting to spend as much time outside and just interacting with nature where they can feel more grounded. Um, and we do know that um, children who have opportunities to be in nature usually end up with better motor coordination down the line when they're playing on teams and that sort of thing, and are also better able to concentrate and pay attention as well. So there's a lot of benefits. How interesting. My goodness. Yeah. Amy, I'd love to hear from you. Sure. Well, there's nothing like being in nature. There's there's no artificial replication of that anywhere, right? To get the sensory experiences that you do when you're in nature. It helps keep us grounded, I think, um, because you know it allows us to, to breathe in the fresh air and to feel the sunlight and to see all of the sights and things. Um, and that can really help our mental health and well-being as well, because sometimes we need a break from the things that we may do inside. And not to be negative about inside play because there are benefits to that too. But I think anytime we have those opportunities to have, you know, engage our kids in outdoor kinds of things, there's lots of benefits to all of us. Um, the nature deficit disorder, um, wow, that says a lot, right? And as a society, it, it kind of, I hope will make us think a little bit about how we, how we balance the two indoor outdoor kinds of play. Absolutely. Um, I don't know what it is, and maybe it, you both mentioned feeling grounded in nature, and maybe that's just a pull we all have as humans, um, but I've heard just from so many of our readers, listeners, friends, and family, if the baby's fussy, just step outside. <laughs> and that just automatically seems to calm, you know, whether it's the change of scenery or the fresh air or the sunshine, you know, something about that we all need. So um, definitely paying attention to that as, as our kids are little, but also so important as they get older too. I'd love to talk about imagination. Uh, we talked a little bit about it as uh, kids are moving into toddlerhood, but um, what age does imagination really begin to form? Is there a specific age? And what kind of play fosters the greatest creativity? Um, and even furthermore, what does that creativity and imagination look like different from toddlers into elementary, middle, and high school years? Uh, Amy, let's start with you. Sure. So we all know toddlers kind of imitate what we do, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Um, but really between the ages of about two and three is when we start to see imagination start to emerge, um, where we see a child who may take a block and turn it into a cell phone, for example, right? Um, and they want to engage you in that conversation when they're talking. Um, and so as that continues to emerge, um, kids are able to tell stories and to create scenes that they want to play out and things like that. Um, and as they move into elementary school, you know, the creativity opportunities are endless um, in that. And so when kids are able to be in environments where imaginative play can, can take root, 
um, then they're able to express that creativity in lots of different ways and develop additional skills in the arts and things like that to support their learning um, as they move into elementary school and beyond. Nicole, same question for you. Yeah, um, definitely the pretend play is, is wonderful for the imagination and the creativity. And so a lot of that is still very unstructured play, right? If you think about kids in early elementary school, um, some of their day is much more structured by that point, you know, um, teacher led to some extent and with specific outcomes that we're expecting. So when they're at home or when they're at a center that maybe um, has a little bit more free creative play that they can do, they might be playing things with um, dolls and and baby bottles, right? And acting out routines they've seen in their home if they have a younger sibling or that sort of thing. Um, but I think as many things as we can notice about what they're doing in that pretend play, that helps us pick up on what they're interested in. And so then us as adults, we can offer more things that might extend that thinking for them um, into different routines and also give them more opportunities and exposure to um, different environments so that they can develop other interests as well. I love what you mentioned earlier in the podcast too about your earliest memories of play in the sandbox using whatever was in the house and I was reminded of that as you were talking offering more things to encourage those imagination skills doesn't always mean you know doing your target run and spending a hundred dollars it can be just you know if they really love um doing baby bottles and, and baby dolls, you know, what's in the kitchen that we can make baby some food. Um, because don't we all know you buy them the toy and then they just want to play with the whisk from the kitchen. So. <laughs> or the box of the toy. The box, or the box of the toy. That's exactly right. <laughs> so um, yes, finding some of those things that align with their interests. I like that tip and, and trying to be creative ourselves. You know, we have to kind of reopen those boxes in our own minds to be creative ourselves and find those things that can further um, their creativity too. So I love that. Let's talk about social skills and play. Um, what kind of boardroom skills, and I'm using quotation fingers, are kids working through when they're playing both at an early age, like that preschool elementary that we've been talking a lot about, but also older kids, middle through high school. Um, they're really doing a lot of practicing at those ages because they're going through a lot of changes at those ages. So what kind of skills you know, are they working toward really being functional, um, competent, um, mastery skills adults um, through those uh, social skills and play. Nicole, let's start with you. Okay, great. Yeah, so I mean, early on, they're doing all sorts of skills, right? As we talked about, they're developing cognitive skills and physical skills and the social emotional skills, understanding how they're feeling, then being able to look at and interpret and understand how other people are feeling. So perspective taking as they're getting a little bit older. Um, they're also really working on developing more complex skills um, with their executive functioning so that when we have studying that comes into play more in middle and high school, um, they can really think about the steps that they need to take to say study for a test or when you have a group project, how to interact with others and work together towards a common goal. Um, and, and independence as well as teamwork is, is very important as we all know. So um, I think also to having some challenge and uncertainty in play is really important because um, they're learning their own limits over time through that. And that just gets more nuanced and complex as they get older. We all know, I mean, we're still learning about ourselves as adults, right? And so every situation they find themselves in or exposed to is an opportunity for them to really learn and develop and hone in on some more skills they can use um, in things throughout life, throughout school and maybe college and work too. Yes, we all hated the group projects, but we all look back <laughs> on the group projects with more we learned through interpersonal skills than probably the actual project we worked on. So I think that's a lot of what you're saying. Um, if you don't mind me asking a follow-up question, when kids are kind of in those middle and high school stages um, and they are experiencing those conflict situations, 
sometimes we don't hear about them. You know, even if we're driving kids home from school or we're talking at the dinner table and we're really trying to find out about their day. Um, I know a lot of it is, is asking the key questions um, and picking up on some signals here and there, but what are some ways that we can find out about what's really happening? Um, sometimes they're embarrassed about situations in conflict, um, but we need to talk about it to all be able to learn from it. So, so what's the best way to kind of do that? Well, you know, and every kiddo is, is very different and individual. So I think it takes, um, hopefully we've been setting the foundation of noticing and, and getting to know and be with your child um, so that you know how to approach it specifically for them. Um, I don't think there's one blanket way for every single child and family and every relationship is different. But I think something you said is, you know, having those family dinners and things like that. Um, if we're, if we're trying to lessen screen time, um, that's giving us more time for the interaction and really building that relationship with, with your child. And so um, being able to just, you know, not make it where you're hammering them with questions, but um, just trying to wonder about and be curious about what's going on for them or things that might be of interest and really being aware of you know, what kinds of things are they working on at school? I know there's a lot of, um, you know, in today's day and age, we'll talk about digital media, right? But a lot of communication that parents receive from the schools. So being very aware of and in tune to what is, um, what kinds of things are going on at school and then being aware of who their friends are, you know, as much as possible and just really fostering that open communicative relationship from early on is important here, especially. Yes, yes. Laying the foundation early and hoping it continues through these age groups. I love those tips. Um, Amy, I'd love to hear from you uh, again, just as a refresher since we got off on a tangent, but those boardroom skills that, that kids are learning early and then as they get older. But I'd also love to hear from you on any tips in conflict um, and talking through that as kids get older. Sure. Well, um, your follow-up question actually hits pretty close to home. I have a middle schooler. Um, and, you know, how was your day? What did you do at school? Those are things that he doesn't respond to that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just important, as Nicole was saying, to stay close and connected and be present. Um, really notice what's going on with your child. You know, you know your child best, right? Um, and so when you notice things, changes in their behavior and their mood and things like that, not bombarding them with questions, but really you know, being close and, and being open and curious about what's going on and, and how they are and who they are. I think as far as the boardroom skills, um, you know, and I can speak from experience with my middle schooler, he's navigating what it's like to be in the, in the people sector, right? Um, and there are, you know, there are peers that you hang with and peers that you don't and you used to and you might later and, and all of those things. And so, exposure to lots of different kinds of people with lots of different kinds of experiences, that's part of life. And so learning how to navigate and be okay with and be able to regulate, you know, when you experience disappointment. And, and again, those big emotions happen all through our lives, right? Middle school is another touch point um, where those big emotions come into play. And so, you know, learning how to really problem solve and to negotiate um, things in those group projects and otherwise while they're still learning how to be individuals in the world as well. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I love those tips. And you're right, you're so right. The self-regulation doesn't go away after toddlerhood. The, those practicing self-regulation skills do not go away. Even as adults, we still need to practice that sometimes. So I really appreciate that point. And that perspective too, because sometimes we think, okay, check, we've worked through the big emotions. <laughs> and then we <laughs> And isn't it true, you know, as they get older, you think, okay, we've gotten past that. We're moving on. And, and now I've got it. We're under control. And then the very next week, <laughs> something else hits us that we're having to work through or repractice or refocus on. So I appreciate that perspective um, from, from both ages, but especially as kids get older. 
We've often heard the phrase glorification of busy. And as parents, of course, we want to create space for our kids to self-grow, but it's also important to provide most opportunity for them too. And I'm sure this goes back to our theme so far of um, independent play versus structured play. And it doesn't change as kids get older. It just, you know, the terminology changes. <laughs> so what kind of balance do you recommend as our kids get into those middle and high school stages where they're more involved in team sports, school activities, sports, other programs, you know, even just hanging out with friends. Um, what kind of balance do you recommend there? Um, and what, what might look like a good balance, you know, day to day even? Um, and Amy, I'd love to start with you. Sure. And I think you, the key word there is balance, um, because you want them to have those social experiences and group, you know, engage in group um, projects and, and activities and things like that. Um, we also want them to have opportunities to just be, um, and so scheduling them from the time they get up until they go to bed at night is, is not a healthy thing, and, and health and wellness is a big piece of that, and so really identifying and knowing, you know, paying attention to what your child is um, thinking and doing and saying and being present in those moments in those conversations with them, I think is really important. And they're, they're always cueing us, whether it's verbally or non-verbally. Um, and sometimes we miss both, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think where, where the balance comes into play is, again, you know your child best. And so if you see that they're potentially struggling or they're saying things or they've got a tummy ache and they don't want to go to school and you know, things like that, or they're avoiding social activities, or they're wanting to stay gone all the time. I mean, the opposite is true. You know, what might be going on and, and remaining open and curious about what could be going on. Not that that has to be a bad thing, but just paying attention and then responding to that. If you see that your child is overscheduled or you yourself are feeling overscheduled, um, that might be an opportunity to kind of reflect um, with your child and, you know, you as a parent um, and, and not just independently of your child, you know, their, their space and our space and being that we also need to make sure that there's time for us to be together unscheduled. Um, that's an important part of staying connected and, and promoting that social emotional development across the lifespan. Mm. Yes, I love all those tips. We are in a um, mental health crisis mode right now for young people and your tips about picking up on cues that they are cueing us all the time. Um, it even reminded me that modeling isn't done in toddlerhood. Modeling continues on um, and, and the scheduling and being intentional and present. I mean, all of these things, we, we have to continue. We're not at any point done with this. Um, even though they're bigger and they seem more self-sufficient, they still need that same presence. So that is lovely. Thank you for sharing all of those tips. Uh, Nicole, I'd love to ask you the same. Well, and so, you know, referring back to the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, while organized activities are great and we're learning great skills through that, and we definitely want some of that, um, having too many can um, really contribute to anxiety and stress and depression for our kiddos um, and, and also cause them to be hypercritical of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so as parents, we are still, like you were saying, setting the example. Um, and I think especially in, in the age of social media, it's so easy to see and compare things as parents and, oh, they're doing this and their child's involved in that. And we need to be in this club and that activity and what have you. Um, so and we think that equates with good parenting, right? Um, but at the point that it's causing us as parents stress, um, that is also our, our kiddos are observing and, and taking that in as well and can cause them stress as well. And so, you know, the more scheduled and structured time we have, the less time it leaves still for some of that unstructured. And like we talked about several times before, the family dinners where you're really just being together or, or just sitting down and spending some time talking. So that becomes a habit early on for your kiddos so that when they're older, they're still willing to do some of that. Um, you know, teenagers are less willing to do some of that, but if we've set the foundation early, I think that's important. And um, really as families, proactively kind of looking at your schedule as the adult and um, 
seeing what all you have scheduled, and then being intentional about creating um, times for things. And, you know, if you're, if you're wondering if maybe you and your child are overscheduled, you can look at some things like um, what particular activities, extracurricular or other, do they really enjoy doing? And um, what does each specific activity accomplish or give them a sense of benefit from doing? Um, is that just being done out of habit? Um, and do, do the kiddos and you feel like they need to be doing that because everybody else is or it appears as everyone else's? Um, and, and are they spending so many, so much time doing so many other things that you really aren't aware of what else is going on in their lives, you know, and that speaks to earlier questions. So if you're noticing some of those things, it's okay to stop and take stock of what's going on and intentionally make a shift in that. Um, and as the kiddos are older, trying to have an open dialogue about that with them is okay. Um, I think we as parents still have to give them permission. They are still kids, right? And so sometimes they're trying to live up to what they perceive to be expected ideals as well. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. So many nuggets I want to talk about out of what you just said. <laughs> A lot of what you're, you know, you just kind of listed off as beneficial activities. Once again, I need to be doing this in my own week for my own self. <laughs> Are these We all do. <laughs> as Marie Kondo says, is this bringing me joy today? <laughs> Yes, um, but even, you know, Brene Brown talks about that too, for anyone who has um, read any of her wonderful books. And if not, um, please do. <laughs> but she's uh, amazing. She, yeah. yes, she talks about kind of masking emotions with busyness. And that's something that really struck me because, and I think many people can fall into this category, you're trying to achieve and you're trying to get to the next step. And if you are that as a parent, um, how are you modeling or even pushing that onto your kids? Are we breeding perfectionists or are we breeding wholehearted children? Um, and that's something that is I think gonna take a constant reflection on our part as parents and a constant evaluation. So I appreciate you providing those tips and, and asking ourselves those questions, taking a moment to, to step back and really asking about each of those activities. Are we doing them for external validation um, or are we doing them for uh, skill building and because it breeds confidence and um, you know, achievement internally and in our families as well. Um, and I mean, I could go on about how those skills and qualities and conversations translate so much to social media usage in young people. Are we doing this for external validation or because it's something that's really a part of who we are and what we're proud of and who we want to present ourselves to the world? Um, so th uh, those are such good tips. I so appreciate you saying everything that you just did. So I'd love to bring Sunbeam into this conversation as well. Um, can you talk about how Sunbeam is using some of the points we've made today to make a positive impact in the lives of kids and families they reach? I know they do, but I'd love to hear specifically uh, what, what you're working on at Sunbeam. Nicole, let's start with you. Sure. So um, Sunbeam, we're in the early childhood services division specifically, but we run um, federally funded early Head Start and Head Start programs. So we're serving kiddos really from the ages of as young as six weeks up to getting close to five years old and going into pre-K and or kindergarten. And so um, Head Start, like, like we've talked about already, is very specific on um, limiting screen time with our kiddos. So in our classrooms, you don't see a lot of screens and TVs. They're not watching videos. Um, it's much more interactive and relationship-based for our children. Um, there's also a lot of outdoor time as much as we can get scheduled in, um, weather permitting, of course, right? In, in Oklahoma, we have the extreme highs and lows, so we do have to be careful about that. But in the summertime, um, we have splash pads and things, and they get to do water play. Um, so, you know, that really, that bond with nature. We even have indoor water tables that they can play with and, and bring natural display items inside so they can investigate them. But we're fortunate to be able to have what are called natural playgrounds at many of our centers. And so things that are much more focused and attuned with nature as opposed to just the big plastic brightly colored slides, you know, that everybody knows and loves so that we're fostering um, what we call outdoor classrooms and we can learn about things 
things. We have gardens at some of our centers so kids can see and they, they get to help plant seeds early on and watch them grow and that sort of thing and observe bugs outside and leaves um, associated with seasons and that sort of thing. Um, and then I think another thing I really love about our programs is that we really try to foster um, that home to school connection. So very much involving our parents and other caregivers. We have grandparents raising grandchildren as well. And so um, having times for them to come to the centers and engage in activities with their kiddos and other children, as well as providing um, activities and things we can send home so that they can do with their children, um, older and younger, right? If there's older siblings as well, so they can all be involved um, with like STEAM and STEM activities as well. Oh, my goodness. I love all of that. That is so beautiful. Amy, I'd love to hear from you and the work you're doing at Sunbeam. Sure. Um, so, you know, as, as Nicole identified, we're, we're in the early childhood business for sure. And, and we have grandparents raising grandchildren as, as one of our program, our service delivery um, portion. We also offer mental health services. So we have counseling available for families of all ages. Um, and we have a foster care program. And I would say the theme running among all of those um, in relationship to what we've been talking about today is that relational piece and that connectedness um, and really being intentional about noticing and you know, staying connected, even if it's virtually trying to figure out creative ways to make sure that's happening. Um, so I think we're really trying to, to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk and everything that we've talked about today across the agency. Um, we see families from all different kinds of backgrounds. And so we want to make sure that they have every opportunity and, and the support that they need from our services to be able to live their best lives. Thank you so much for sharing that today. We are reaching the end of our time for the podcast today. There are so many more things I would love to talk with you both about. We'll have to have you both on at some point or another um, and to put you on the spot again, but is there anything you'd love to leave parents with? Any piece of advice um, for any age or uh, anyone who is raising a child who, who needs some encouragement or support? Um, what would you like to tell them today? You know, some of what we've been talking about today, sometimes we just need to slow down um, and just be for a minute and breathe and connect with our kiddos. And, and we've all got a lot going on and um, we've got to take care of ourselves first as parents. And, you know, the, the mask analogy on the airplane, they tell us, put it on yourself first and then your child. And that feels so counterintuitive, intuitive from that parent perspective, but we've really got to make sure that we're where we need to be in order to continue to support our children. So I think that would be a takeaway for me in relationship to, you know, just speaking to parents. The job of parenting is one of the hardest jobs there is for sure. Um, and there's no manual, there's no, you know, we don't know. And your, your child um, is your child and you know him or her best. And so um, but make sure that you're also taking care of yourself in this process because it's so important, so important. Thank you. That You're so right. And we all needed to hear that. So I appreciate that, Amy. Nicole, how about you? Sure. I mean, the job of being a parent is basically never done, right? No matter how old your kiddo gets, um, you're always there in some form or fashion for them. But I think um, that's really the heart of it, right? You're there. That relationship and you as the person um, with your child and interacting, no matter how old they are, that is the biggest gift is you being there for them. It's not about, um, you know, all the expensive toys and all the different things you can have and buy and get. Um, it's, it's about that relationship and just the experiences you can have by spending time together and talking together. And um, it's not always about the most important lesson, um, soccer lesson or gymnastics um, practice or what have you. There are so many opportunities um, to be able to do things with kiddos to expose them and give them good foundational skills. So I know there's a lot of pressure for parents, especially these days, but um, some of that is just you're the gift to them and they, the things they remember, and I think all of us probably remember as we get older is um, experiences and time we spend with others. And so I think those are the most important things. If we just slow down, like Amy was saying, 
and really be and spend the time um, and build that relationship, that's the most important thing we can do for our kids. Absolutely. Well said, both of you. Thank you so much for being with us today. This is going to be a podcast that I know I'm going to flag over and over again to revisit some of the tips. And I so appreciate your time. Uh, for those of you listening, you can find out more about Nicole and Amy's work, as well as Sunbeam Family Services at www.sunbeamfamilyservices.org. We hope you join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.